Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Hi, Merle. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being the first guest on season three, episode one. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Well, I'm excited for us to have a really exciting conversation today about boundaries. But before we get into that, I would love if you would share a little bit with the audience about who you are, your decades worth of experience as a psychotherapist and um, and kind of your specialty areas, what you focus in. Well, thank you. Uh, again, my name is Merle Yost. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I have been since 1995. It seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> um, I'm a trained Gestalt therapist. Uh, I trained at the San Francisco Gestalt Institute, uh, and I'm trained in Buddhist psychology and a whole lot of other disciplines, energy psychology. Uh, and I'm best known for working with men who were sexually abused as children. Uh, I also worked a lot with buying gay men who are heterosexually married. Always an interesting uh, dilemma. And, um, but I'm mostly known for working with trauma. If you had a really messed up childhood or a lot of trauma, I'm the guy you got to see because I'm also a, an approved consultant in the EMDR. I was trained by Francine Shapiro. So, I mean, I was in the right place to, a lot of, mm. right, to learn a lot of this stuff from, from the founders. And so I feel very fortunate and been able to integrate that. And I've had a lot of, of training in bioenergetics and, and a whole bunch of other stuff because uh, I was curious. <laughs> Well, when you focus on that many things, right, you're, it's like you start to learn about one thing and you realize, okay, I've learned all I can learn about this, but it's led me into this other area, right? Like that curiosity for learning more and how everything kind of integrates and informs one another. Yeah, it's, it's, I think we have to reach our own gestalt. We have to have our own consensus about what it all means working together. And we, we get this perspective that uh, comes is informed, obviously, by how we see the world or how we were trained to see the world. But it then makes sense and goes, Kirchhoff, oh, I kind of get that now. <laughs> because there's all of these different pieces and there's so many different kinds of psychology and different ways of looking at things uh, that it's really important uh, that you expose yourself to a whole lot of stuff. And that's how... I came about to teaching about boundaries because I had all this different training and boundaries from different perspectives and uh, particularly the energy psychology, which is really not well known or utilized. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, when you really start to understand how this all works from an energetic level, it's a complete game changer as to how you're in the world and how you, it stops people from being a victim it stops them from absorbing everybody's stuff and it lets you be actually a much better friend and a much better witness to another person's experience without intruding on it uh, or absorbing it. I think that this is a really important conversation for us to have in the field of therapy <laughs> um, because, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is that people burn out in this field and they burn out, I think in large part because of what you're talking about, that people are absorbing other people's stuff and then they have to deal with it, discharge it in some way. And they, 
realize that they need to discharge it or how to discharge it or any of that. And <laughs> that's yeah. one of the nice things about the energy psychology and the gestalt was it's all about discharging all this energy. And so I have all these techniques. I would, back when I was doing my full day workshops, I would do an exercise. I call it the standing exercise. I put somebody on the opposite side of the room for me and I sit on this side and then we'd, I'd ground them and put them in their body. And then I've had them make eye contact with me and take one step toward me. And then what would happen is, is that would bring right to the surface whatever was going on for them because we were right there in the moment with what was going on. And I could read them because that's what I was really good at doing and that's what I teach people to do. But they then I bring it into their awareness and then we processed it. And then they took the next step and the same thing happened. And then once they got to me, then I had to send them back and then I would come toward them because it's a very different energy when somebody's approaching you versus approaching them. And so by the time we did it both ways, they were a different person. We had just a whole bunch of stuff that they didn't even realize was showing up in every contact they were making with every person they were making every day. That sounds really profound. Yeah, yeah it was life changing. People talked about it being a life changing workshop because it really profoundly impacted them. I bet. I mean, if you're walking around carrying other energy that you didn't want to carry around in the first place and you're not really even sure that you understand it fully and how to get rid of it. Well, um, and all the training you had about how to be with people from your families, that's what the, the, the big thing with yeah. boundaries is, is that you have to go back and look at how you were raised. I call it the dance of intimacy that we learned from our parents. We learned to, how to be with men with our father. We learned how to be with women with our mother. And that's the model we take out into the world and assume the whole world operates on that same paradigm. And it's just not true. <laughs> and so you first have to work through the stuff you have with your parents and then start to say, well, maybe the world is not exactly what I was trained to do, what worked that way. And we go to work and we turn our bosses into our parents because we're trying to work out our stuff with them. We marry our parents and well, one form or another, usually the one we have the most trouble with. <laughs> and so, right? uh, so if you don't clean up this childhood stuff and really look at that in a profound way, you're just going to keep reliving the same drama over and over and over again. And there's just no payoff in doing that. No, no. I, how do you think that impacts folks when they're, they're saying like, I want to step outside of the system. I want to create my own practice. How does this play a role in that and what happens there? Well, I think we draw to ourselves the clients that we need things to learn. <laughs> and so yes. i mean i stopped doing consultation because so many of the current modern therapists are unwilling to look at their countertransference and so they just fire the client which That's to me so is to being a therapist but i just it just got to be all of the, just one after another they were just not unwilling to look at their own stuff and i said so the whole point of being a therapist is to look at your own stuff. <laughs> at least from my worldview and how I grew up as a therapist or got trained. And so I, would, I just so horrified, I just stopped doing it because I just mm. couldn't, uh, I couldn't code them into saying that that's okay. And they're yeah. just unwilling to look at their own stuff. I said, well, if you aren't willing to get your stuff, you shouldn't be seeing other people because that just means you're dumping your stuff on them all the time. And that's not okay. Yeah, that, I think that's really interesting. And um, I've had conversations about this with other folks about, you know, are training programs covering this? Is, <sighs> is that why that that's happening? Like, how is this coming well, into? We've moved from a psychodynamic model to a CBT model. And CBT is not about digging in. CBT is not about looking at your stuff. It's about replacing this thought with that thought. I call it the difference in between uh, rearranging the furniture and remodeling the house. <laughs> and I grew up in a let's remodel the house. We'll go and tear out the foundation and see what this is all really about and what's working and what's not working and build our way back up. But in a CBT world, we're really talking about uh, doing a quick fix, put a Band-Aid on it, send them out to the war because that's what insurance companies like. 
Um, right. But it's not what's going to be in the best interest of the client in the long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's so true. Um, we are in that in, in a weird paradigm in our profession in terms of um, how do we navigate that line of like realizing that many people need more than 10 sessions. Most. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know I do. You're still beginning the uncovering. And the, the part about CBT being evidence-based, if you read the research in 12 to 14 months, all the symptoms come back. Mm. So it's a nice short-term fix, but it doesn't last. <laughs> Fascinating. So in terms of boundary work, how does that create lasting change? Like, oh. what is it about changing our boundaries and understanding how to architect different types of boundaries that provides lasting change for people? Well, it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of boundaries, because in our culture, we're really taught that merging we're supposed to feel everybody's feeling. Two shall become as one. Uh, that you are are simply a cog in your family wheel, <laughs> and you're not really an individual. You're just part of this bigger thing. And there's truth in that, but there's also a, a, a fallacy in that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, once we really learn, so I'm just gonna do a short description. Sure. Uh, you'll have some idea of what I'm talking about. All right, so get to it. <laughs> um, so we're all made up of energy. We're just atoms. Mm -hmm. so atoms have this frequency. Atoms have this juice about them. And so once you begin to recognize that we're all made up of the same thing, that everything is made up of the same thing and is all just made up of energy, we just have an agreement that this is you and your body and this is that chair and, and it and that's that dog over there, <laughs> but it's all energy. And so once you really learn how, one, you really grasp that and start to learn how to uh, contain your energy, I teach all these tools in the workshop, I, I teach you how, to, I call it the bubble. They teach you about mm -hmm. this energetic bubble around us and that you stay in your bubble and they stay on in their bubble and you can make contact with your bubble to their bubble. But what happens is, is that you, but just by making contact at the contact boundary is, is that you then know everything that's going on in their bubble. You don't have to merge with it. You don't have to absorb it. You don't have to take it on and you can be a witness to what's going on. You can reflect that back or you just know what's going on. As I would do that standing exercise with people, I would simply expand my bubble till I was making contact with their bubble. And in the Heart Math Institute talks about us storing in our heart chakra, all of the data about everything that's going on in us. And once you make contact with the bubble, all of that information just is, is, is spread out and or is communicated to whoever they're making contact with. So if you're really paying attention and you learn how to, to you, all of it, as a somatic therapist, I'm paying attention to what's going on in me. And that way I know what's going on in them because I can tell at that contact boundary. Somebody sitting there, when I'm talking to them, and I say, so what's going on in your chest right now? And they say, how did you know there was something going on in my chest? <laughs> so I can feel it. <laughs> I'm not absorbing it. I'm thinking, you know, I'm simply aware of it. Um, there's something called interoception. I'm not mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that. But I walk across a, uh, I do walk five to 10 miles a day. It's just part of my routine. And I walk across this big intersection every day to go to a park that I like to go to. And I can tell getting to the intersection how soon the light's going to change because I'm tuning into the, ener the energy of that and I can just feel it. And I'll, or I'll be walking and all of a sudden they'll say faster. And I know I hate to move up because I'm going to miss the light if I don't get there quicker. So, so by learning to tune into all of this stuff around you, it gives you so much more information and it's really useful information, generally speaking. And if it's not, you can just discard it. Okay, that doesn't, uh, thank you, but I don't need that. So, uh, and couples becoming one. Excitement happens at the contact boundary. Mm. And if you merge, you kill sex. 
because sex happens at that context where that excitement happens. It's not friction. It's just that my energy is making contact with your energy and we can feel all of that buzz. But the moment you merge, you're killing it. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. I'm processing that. That's why a lot of relationships become sexless is because they've merged into this one one being, well, no, you're not. You're still separate individuals. You may have a pack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have an agreement about how this is going to work. <clears throat> but the truth is you're still individuals and you're always going to be individuals. Yeah. Fascinating. And so why is this important as we structure our businesses? Like as oh. practitioners... <laughs> Well, why are these boundaries important? Well, first of all, a lot of people come to the profession for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that annoys me the most is they want they want to do something where people like them, that people appreciate them. <laughs> so they're unwilling to confront the client. They're unwilling to do anything that might make the client unhappy. <laughs> well, then you're not going to be a very good therapist. <laughs> because <laughs> your your job is to say the things they don't want to hear your job yeah. is to reflect back to them the parts of themselves that they can't see that are causing problems mm -hmm. and so they make them unhappy uh i remember this one of my early clients this lovely woman who came in for the first year twice a week and cried mm -hmm. <laughs> my job was to hold her crying that was, that was what my job was. The second year she came in and she yelled at me the entire time about a stupid, incompetent therapist I was. <laughs> uh, but she needed to go through, she was, she was just a baby and she needed to go through those developmental phases and she needed to push back against me and have me not reject her or push her away. That was all very healing. It wasn't much fun. No. <laughs> I think that's him. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but I think this is such an important thing to share because as young therapists, I think that is very difficult for people because the perception is I'm going to help people and it's going to be a feel-good experience. But by and large, providing therapy is not a feel-good experience. No, it shouldn't be because... The whole point is to get to the stuff in your life that you can't face or can't fix. It's called pain. <laughs> and so you, and once you go there, that's not particularly going to be fun. Uh, and so my clients have been my best teachers. And I fortunately grew up as a therapist with really incredible somatic therapists who both gave me that therapy and modeled it as well as my consultants. And so it was never about the client. Okay, what the hell's going on with you? <laughs> what are you doing? So we really had to look at our counter-transference and we had to look at what it was activating from my life. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. And I did as much healing in my consultation as I did in my therapy because it was just all had to be faced and confronted and dealt with. Uh, and that gave so much more space to my clients to do uh, what they need to do for their healing. The woman that I talked about there taught me how to be in silence. So when a client would give me the silent treatment, I said, oh, I've been trained by professionals. <laughs> <laughs> it's this baby therapist. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Sit there and hold the space. That was my job. Right. I, I, but I think that is particularly challenging for people to sit there in the silence or the perception yeah. is, right, the question comes up as a supervisor all the time. Well, I think this might not be the right client for me, the right client fit, because they're they're not actually talking and saying much, um, but they keep coming back is my response. They keep coming back because something is happening in that space, even if you're not aware and it's not a tangible thing, but they're going through something. And there is, it's so powerful to be able to sit with somebody through that process and get them to the other side. And then they go, do you remember when I used to come in and I would just sit there and not say anything? Yeah. Well, because they needed, it's their way of 
it's almost a passive aggressive way of testing to see whether you're going to reject them or not. And if you fire them, you've rejected them and you're reinforcing the wounds that they're not good enough or they're broken yes. or they're whatever. And so you have to meet them where they are. And you have to then look at what's going on for you if you're having a problem with that. So, <laughs> mm, yes. So uh, that's why these boundaries are so important. And once you learn how to stay in your bubble, it makes sitting there in that silence so much easier because you're not absorbing their anxiety, their angst, their whatever going on. You're just holding the container very firmly and giving them unconditional love, mm. which is one thing they probably never got. Yeah, that's true. I think one thing that um, I took the heart math training, you had mentioned that earlier. And one thing that I really loved about that was that the technique of really expanding and feeling in and filling the room with that feeling and being able to do that if you're holding space, right? It, to have that as your own skill to fill the space with love Yes. Versus sitting there with the other person's anxiety, they're going to absorb, they're going to feel some of that love that you're putting out there too. It's the most healing thing that will happen and there'll never be a word spoken about it. Mm. So my version of that is the loving kindness meditation in Buddhism. Mm. Uh, is, is it, I just have a four word mantra, just love, joy, compassion, equanimity mm. and I fill myself with the love and that energy and then I send it out and it just fills the space for the person and it's beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah and then you're not you're you're because you're pushing out you're not taking in yeah and that's what the the good energetic boundaries uh there are ways that people can cross them but then I give the fixes for that too so, uh, and, but most of the time when you have a boundary failure is probably something in you that you need to clean up or heal mm -hmm. because, because the child is taking charge and they're doing whatever's necessary to survive in that moment or to feel loved or to feel safe. And the child needs to be acknowledged, healed and integrated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So yeah. I learned, uh, are you EMDR trained? I don't know. I am. I'm EMDR trained. I just started working on my certification and I had my first certification consultation this morning, actually. Yeah. I, Cause I've learned, then I went and trained with Peggy Pace for lifespan integration. It's a really nifty mm -hmm. way to help people integrate. And I have a shorthand version of it that I teach a lot that people are just shocked at the power of it. And, in, in three to five minutes, you can integrate a child part and they're just blown away at the difference. It's just really powerful. So I'm writing that down because that's not something that I've heard of yet. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> lifespan <laughs> integration. Lifespan integration. I will be looking that up for sure. <laughs> it's a different, I think it's, there's overlap with IFS, internal mm -hmm. family systems, but this is really focused on the integration of it rather than creating this cooperative environment for these various parts to still hang on and be empowered. It's and because I think the task is always integrated into the whole. Uh, right. So that they're no longer having to take care of you or defend you or do whatever they think they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so uh, so that's my prejudice. So <laughs> that's okay. We're allowed to have them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so what are some ways that people can end up um, crossing the energetic boundaries? You had mentioned that can happen, but there are some ways to prevent that from happening. Um, it's, I'm trying to think of what I can say in shorthand, because that's all part of the workshop. Uh, oh, oh. I'll say this is that most people believe that positive energy can be sent from you to someone else, that you can send them warm thoughts, caring, whatever. But if you believe that, then you have to believe the opposite, that when somebody's thinking bad thoughts about you, they're sending you bad energy. And that can go 
through the bubble. And so uh, learning how to take those out, we call it call them butt daggers. And so I, if I'm going along in my day and all of a sudden everything starts blowing up in front of me, I know, okay, I got hit. So I'll get rid of this thought dagger and everything will go back to normal. I mean, it just, it's that simple and it really is that effective. Uh, and so, and certainly there, well, I, I tell this short story. I told it in the workshop is <clears throat> as I was driving up the Bay area, uh, which I had to a number of times because I live in Ventura, California, and I was driving mm -hmm. up to San Francisco and, uh, on one trip, I was cruising along in my little Fiat, and uh, I was doing—I don't know—I I, I must be doing 80, 90 mile an hour in the in the in the carpool lane, and this truck starts coming up behind me so fast, and I'm—I'm doing—I'm not exactly going slow, and so I just move over because I don't want to be in front of him if he wants sure. to be going. He then tries to run me off the road for the next twenty miles. And uh, it was a hair-raising experience, I can assure you. And so I get to my exit, and he figures out I'm exiting, and he blocks the exit and stops traffic on 101 to, to get to me. <laughs> and oh, so, my gosh. So I roll down my window a little, and he's absolutely nuts. He's screaming at me, making, he's going to be my bitch. And just as he was just going like over and over and over and over and over again, no coherence. I had no idea what was going on. I just kept saying, I have no idea what's going on with you. I don't understand what's, what, what I, what's go, what I supposedly did. And so eventually he, he discharged enough that I could see a way to move around and leave and they're Cars were honking and there. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> it was a three ring circus. And so he apparently had discharged enough that he didn't need to follow me anymore. And so I spent the next 30 minutes or so pulling out all of those daggers because I couldn't breathe because he just oh, sure. all of that stuff into me. And so, and I was on my way to a friend's house and when I got there, I was fine. It was all over because I knew how to get rid of those daggers and I cleaned it up and I didn't carry him with me. I simply let him go. That's, I think, a really powerful lesson that many of us need to learn how to do. Um, I don't think that I've mastered the art of that. Um, can try, tried, but well, not always successful. Well, part of it's cleaning up childhood stuff, and we 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 take things personally that often have absolutely nothing to do with mm -hmm. us. Oh, it's true. <laughs> and so, yeah. so really like I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> it isn't all about me. And so, and then we get, but we, as a child, that's how we respond to everything. And again, oh, it's yeah. about integrating those child parts because that child, the way I describe it in therapy, as I say, so you're traipsing along, and something bad happens and it triggers some memory of something from the past, some resonance of that. And so the mm -hmm. child part, if it hasn't been resolved, the child part comes screaming to the surface and surface and takes charge and they try and resolve it in the same way that they were able to resolve it or to get through it and survive. And right. so you have a six-year-old running the show instead of the 40-year-old. Mm -hmm. And that's really problematic. <laughs> Thank you very much. And so... That's why, and that, so when I explain this to most clients, I say, so we need to, to go back and rescue that child. The, uh, the shorthand version of that, uh, if you want me to give you that, I can tell sure. you now, is just that uh, once the, I get them in touch with the child part, I then just take them through sort of a short guided imagery, which I say to them, I know that you're doing the best job you can to take care of you. Mm -hmm. but as an adult, I have a whole lot more tools now to handle this and be more effective. And your job is really done. You've done a great job. We made it. We're here now because of the hard work that you did, but your work is done. It's time for you to go play and to be at peace and so I have this conversation. And then what I do is I using an abbreviated version of the lifespan integration, I have them sit down 
with the adult part and I have the adult then from that child's age on, take them through a slideshow of all the things that have happened since they were that age. And so it's just a quick, rapid, you don't stop, they don't look at anything, they don't examine it, they just show this, this, this. If they're six, they start at seven, eight, nine, ten, blah, 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 blah. And they do that a couple of times, and usually by the second or third time, they turn to the child and say, do you understand now that, that we're no longer a child, This is that we're, and that we're the same person? Mm-hmm. And usually they get it. And so then they, <clears throat> using the EMDR, I just have them visualize absorbing the child into the heart until they become one. Mm. And it's so powerful. It just and you just see the transformation happening in front of them. That that child's job is done. That they get to come into the hold and have all the benefits of being the adult, and not being seeing the world from that six-year-old or however child's age again. It changes everything. No, that sounds pretty powerful. Isn't that sweet? It's simple. It's so direct. Mm-hmm. Speaking directly what's happening, and and. Uh, I, the therapist I've trained in doing this just said it just completely changed their practice because they were just integrating child parts right and left. Because that's three quarters of what we do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's trying to figure out, but without the tools. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a simple, it's an abbreviated version, but I think it's what's all that's needed. And so uh, when somebody comes to see me, I make them do homework. And one of the things I make them do is I make them do a, um, they have to do a, a chart of their life, uh, starting at their current age, going back as far as they can remember, and they write one to three moments to take them back to being that age. Mm. And so that we lived on Washington Street. I I lost my virginity, my first kiss. I got beaten up. I mean, whatever takes them back to being that age. And so we've already primed them, so mm-hmm. that we start doing that timeline thing, just go ding, 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 ding. They don't have to think about it. But right. it also, it's a great diagnostic tool mm. because they put things in there they wouldn't ever think about telling me. Yeah, I could see that. And so mm-hmm. I get an arc of their life in a way that makes that it just gives me this snapshot of their life that I go, oh. And so and then I make them do the top five and top 10 from EMDR, top. 10 bad moments, top five good moments. And so with all that homework, I have a, a whole way of seeing them. Plus I make them do a sexual autobiography because that impacts everything. <laughs> and so and so with all this homework, they, they get mad at me. So I have to do all this homework? I said, yes. I said, because when you come in, I tend to do short-term trauma work. So I need to have the best overall view of you that I can possibly have and know where the landmines are and whether even appropriate to be doing the kind of work that I do. And Mm. so uh, if they won't do it, that tells me they're not ready to do the deep work and they need somebody to hold them for a long time to get them there. That's not what I do. (laughs) You've already done that. Yeah. You've been there, done that. Yeah. I I come in, I can clean up a lot very quickly. I've had so many men tell me have changed their life because, and women, I've had so many women come in and clear these rapes and all this other stuff, and they can suddenly get into a relationship. I had so many of them get married within a year Mm -hmm. or two afterwards, like everything just changed. So by doing all the homework and going after the big traumas and integrating as many child parts as possible, it completely changes their life. Yeah. I, I, the only, the whole reason why I've been working on, developing my ability to provide EMDR to clients is because I ended up doing it for myself. And, <laughs> yes. uh, and I was like, Oh my gosh, here's all this stuff that I had thought I had dealt with that was still there. And it was still so emotionally charged. And the thing that I like so much about it is that it's both subtle and profound Yes. In the shifts that occur. Because yes. you just feel different. The, mm-hmm. You just feel because that wounded child isn't running the show anymore. Yeah. Uh, I can, uh, if I can tell you a short story in my very first EMDR training, it was 1993. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was just graduating high school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. Uh, and, um, 
I then they told us in the first training to pick something small because they didn't want to open up this huge can of worms. And so I'd always had this odd fear of of tall buildings. I'd look up at a tall building and just about pass out. We didn't know what that was about. Uh, and so we set it all up and she started doing the cognition, we started doing the eye movement with the cognition. And all of a sudden, about 30 seconds into it, my head went back, a cock went down my throat and I dissociated. It was all the occluded memory from my early childhood, of which I was being raped by my father. Uh, and so um, it took me a long time to come back. <laughs> I bet. We've since learned that trauma, that phobias are often a cover for trauma. Mm. And so if you're going to deal with a phobia, be warned that there's probably a trauma that this is hiding underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that was the beginning of, and that was the beginning of EMDR. I mean, it was only a few right. years at that point. And uh, so, and I went back to my therapist and said, you're going to go take the training. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and we did a lot of EMDR. And my supervisor was at the same training that I was doing the, the at. So, so this all worked really well. And so I, I've been very blessed to be in the right place at the right time in so many ways. Uh, but the heal, but the beginning of the healing of that just changed my life to, cause I had all this history of dissociation and all these other things going on that we couldn't figure out why everybody assumed there was something there, but the EMDR just blew it wide open very quickly. So. Mm. Well, it sounds like it also, it blew it up but then it helped you to integrate and move past all of that stuff. Yeah. The, lately I've been doing some more deep healing work with pranic healing and really clearing the leftover trauma in my body that we hadn't been able mm. to clear. And that just was unbelievable. The difference that, that made too. So it's, I guess I'm a healing junkie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there are worse things to be than somebody who is exploring all these different avenues for living the healthiest life that they can live. Right? Well, I think I became a therapist to heal myself without realizing that was really the point. Well, isn't that what we all do, Merle? I think so. I just, I, <laughs> I can admit it now. I think a lot of people haven't. And and I think a lot, and that's why I was talking about earlier with you, is that a lot of them aren't interested in healing themselves, which to me seems so counterproductive or, or intuitive to being in the profession because physician heal thyself. <laughs> right. It makes, it makes a huge impact on uh, our ability to do the work. I also think it dramatically changes the perspective, right? If we're looking at like, oh, well, I'm not going to explore countertransference because I don't, that's not supposed to be happening or, yeah. <laughs> um, right? Like then you're missing so much really valuable information about what's going on. And um, I, my perspective, I, I guess is the framework that I was learned is that no, like after every appointment, at least when I was first starting, it was like, you need to journal about it. You need to fully explore it. You need to fully explore what's going, going on with you, what's coming up for you in context of this relationship. And I think it really allows for, um, a, a greater depth of understanding and the ability to hold space and compassion. Uh, yeah. Compassion, not take it personally. Yeah. All it's, that not stuff. Me, it's about you. <laughs> it's like, I'll deal with my stuff, but this is about you. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So different, different time period. Um, and as a supervisor, I think for folks that are doing supervision, that's, something that is important to pay attention to and whether or not we're willing to sustain providing supervision for somebody who's not willing to explore that stuff. And you won't. And that's the, so, cause yeah, cause 
the, the supervision to me is as much therapy as my individual therapy was. I have any way I think I may have done more healing there in some ways. It was a different container, but you learn so much in your own therapy mm -hmm. about how to be a therapist and how to be a human being. And uh, I, again, I just don't understand people who aren't interested in doing their own self work, but uh, again, I'm strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all strange, right? We're all strange, but um, I think it's a really great, question that you're asking, you know, what is the motivation here? If you're not willing to do that work for yourself, how, how can you ask somebody else to go farther than you're willing to go for yourself? Well, but I think we were bringing a lot of narcissists into the field who are setting this up about every narcissist I know has a full psychotherapy practice. <laughs> because they are love bombing the clients and 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 but it's and they're not confronting them in any way because they want to risk being liked. Mm. And so people love seeing them because they feel so good when they're there. It doesn't last, but while they're there, it's fabulous. Uh, so no <laughs> progress is being made. <laughs> no healing yeah. being done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's challenging. If a client doesn't get mad at you, you're not doing very good therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that's, I, it's I, like parenting. Yes, it's, it's exactly like, it's what I call long-term long psychotherapy is simply reparenting. Mm -hmm. All it is. And as I told you, uh, we I gave you my favorite Sheldon Cop quote before we started, but real change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. And that is the paradigm of my psychotherapy practice. My job was to make the pain worse mm -hmm. so that they would address it and move through it and heal it. So they didn't have to carry it around anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that it's true. Um, I, <laughs> I, I do groups a lot for folks in um, either 28 day recovery program or they're in sober living. And, um, and it often, I often get comments of like, I don't, I, I don't like when you come because oh. you, <laughs> you make you, a things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, well, that's my job. My job is to make you feel uncomfortable because part of the reason why you're stuck in this pattern is because you're seeking comfort over everything else. And now things that are safe and healthy feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so we have to go there. We have to we have to explore that discomforted part. Well, I did the, the two-year gestalt training program in San Francisco, and it was three hours uh, once a week. And plus, we did a lot of weekends and all of that stuff. But the first 90 minutes was didactic training, teaching us some new concept. And the second 90 minutes was a group therapy. And so they would do individual work with somebody in front of the room and then they dissect the work afterwards. That was how you learn therapy. <laughs> yes, it was powerful. But I, when I, when I graduated my three-year masters, I, there's more fun ways to be masochistic, but uh, is that if the, they did an oral uh, exam and at the end, the, the, the instructor looked at me and said, you're light years ahead of anybody else that we've talked to. Because <laughs> so, I had some real training. Because I did my gestalt training concurrently with my graduate program. Mm. Years. 
so that I knew that when I graduated and I, and I had all these student loans and I needed to make some serious money. And so I needed to be able to work. So I was able to go to work that I have a lot to learn. Oh my God, so much to learn, but I had a fundamental foundation far more so than most people coming out of graduate school. And so mm -hmm. people aren't doing training programs really much anymore. They're doing simple things here and there, but you need to go dive into something deeply and know it in your bones and then add other stuff to that. You don't have to be mm -hmm. isolated, that, but that's your foundation. Gestalt is my foundation of looking at the world. I've integrated all this other stuff, but but it all comes back to contact boundary and being present in the moment and, and, and just being curious mm. what's going on right now. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's where the magic happens is in that present moment. And when you can kind of just move with, whatever is happening in the room, it doesn't necessarily have to. Presenting itself for a reason. Right. Let's figure it out. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be fun. Let's go see what happens. But <laughs> I don't know. It was some, for me, after having had such a horrific childhood, the healing was so peaceful. Mm and was nothing compared to the pain that I went through in childhood. And, and so, and having people could hold me as I encountered that and walked through that changed everything because mm -hmm. it told me that it wasn't my fault, that it wasn't about me, that I was the victim. And, and I don't believe in living, being victim, being a victim as a way of being. Of course. We've all been victimized, but the moment that you become a victim, then it's over. It's mm -hmm. dead end. There's no getting better. You're just, just like, okay, I've been slaughtered. I'm dead now. <laughs> so it's like, and so I'm the anti-victim guy. I, my last book, Facing the Truth of Your Life, I wrote something called the Victim Identity Disorder. It pisses mm -hmm. off a lot of people. Uh, and uh, it, there's like three things in there I write about. That's one of them that really piss off a lot of people. And uh, I had a couple of editors just completely melt down. One ran away reading it because they saw themselves in it and they couldn't handle it. Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> Fortunately, one of the editors called me and said, I'm melting. And I said, do this. He said, you're joking. I said, no, do this. He did. He said, it worked. I said, uh-huh. <laughs> but that's that's like ultimately if, if you're experiencing that much discomfort, maybe that's the the push that they needed to go do their own work. Yes. And, um, and I mean, how are we going to um, create change if we don't create those like ripples and bubbles and challenge certain worldviews that- Yes, and it doesn't mean they have to come to your worldview, but it means you have to examine it and say, is this really working for you? Let's see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other two that I take on that pisses off people is I don't believe in self-love. I think it's a really, really bad concept. I think it gets used as this anesthetic to soothe yourself, but it doesn't change anything. It's just trying to create a barrier between you and other people. I think love is something you give and something you receive. I think the task is self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. Because it's in self-acceptance, it's the basis of 12-step. You have to accept you're an alcoholic before you can do anything about it. So you have to accept that you're a child molester before you can do anything about it or you, they're an idiot or whatever it is that you think you are. Because then you can say, I'm okay with this and I can live with that. Or you can say, I'm going to take these steps to change that. That's mm -hmm. where real stuff happens. And that pisses off people too. And then uh, the other one is forgiveness. I don't believe in forgiveness. I think it's a bad concept. And in the book, I differentiate between big hurts and small hurts. And I only talk about forgiveness in terms of the big hurts. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they killed your child. They cut off your arm. They did something irreparably that changed your life. It's never going to be the same. And we have people go, their child killed, and they go on TV and say, oh, I forgave them. Absolute bullshit. It doesn't happen or work that way. <laughs> so, but you have, but I believe in taking back all of your power. 
Mm-hmm. And that person stop giving them the power to make your day bad. Stop giving them the power to keep you in misery. That is is what healing is about. And mm-hmm. so it's their job to, to offer an apology and make amends. And you're giving them absolution, which is what forgiveness means, is letting them off the hook. Mm-hmm. And there's no growth potential there for them in this. Mm. That's true. And the people who get most worked up are the ones who did something that they want to be forgiven for and afraid they're not going to be. Mm. <laughs> well, because they aren't willing to do their own work and do their own cleanup. So, and I. I mean, I can appreciate when you work with individuals that have experienced significant amounts of trauma, um, there can there can be a, a an outside pressure of yes, you need to forgive and then you can move on and 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 I think that can get people into trouble because um, that's like you're saying it's not it's not the Thing that's going to help heal them and help them to move forward. Oh, it's not going to heal them at all. And 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 having those boundaries to that external pressure is important. And you have to go through all the rage. You have to go through all the anger. You have to express and discharge all of that so that you aren't carrying it around with you because it doesn't do you any good and it doesn't do them any harm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. there's no benefit in this. So the point is to yeah. heal it, to process all of that so you can get back to, to who you are. Or if you've lost somebody, st- and be in touch with the love of that person and not in the loss of them. Mm. That's a big deal. That's yes. a big deal. <laughs> not yeah. easy, and it takes its own time, but that's the goal. Yeah, I think that 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 piece is so in in integral, right? That we can't expect people to go through that process, like snip snap. Sometimes we have to sit in the heavy pain for a while before we get to that threshold that you were talking about earlier, where, okay, we come, we have that, you know, moment where you go like, this is terrible. I don't want to be here anymore. I got to do something different. And that's where the motivation to change then happens. And they have that energy to do something different, but they have to kind of go work their way around that wheel um, of, of it's a creation and change. Yeah. And you have to go through it. You don't get to walk. You don't get to avoid it by saying, I forgive. It just makes it all magically go away because it's still in here. Yeah. And it's going to eat you up like cancer if you don't get through, work through that and, and get rid of it so that you can be at peace. Mm -hmm. So if people wanted to take your training, uh, seven steps of powerful boundaries, powerful (laughs) to powerful boundaries, how, where, where should they go to find more information on that? It's an uh, on-demand training. It's a it's a it's a online video workshop or workshops or seven of steps of them. Uh, just go to unspokenboundaries.com, and it's all there. Uh, it and you can take it at your own pace. If you're a, a psychotherapist in California, you can get 24 CEs for it. <laughs> Ooh, that's a deal. It is a deal, <laughs> and so. Uh, and it's we're likely going to expand to a lot of other areas very shortly uh, in terms of the CEs because this needs to be for first responders and nurses and doctors and and all sorts of people people that do people lines of all of this stuff yes and so and certainly families (laughs) so uh so it the people who've taken it tell me and embrace what I'm teaching them it changes their life and mm-hmm. and there are lots of tools. There's lots of techniques. Uh, I also get into meditation. It's a really powerful tool for this. Mm-hmm. But you first have to start at looking at where your boundaries came from, which is from your family. Mm. Yeah. And so the first step is a really deep look into your what you grew, what you discovered growing up. Because if you grew up in a family where 
shame and diminishing and humiliation or violence is how you were treated, you believe that's what love means. And so you're unconsciously going out into the world and looking for those people who do that because that's what love means to you. So you have to go in and process and deal with that so that you can actually let real love in. Mm. Huge. So, so it's not a fun journey <laughs> at times. Step And step one and four are the tough ones. Four, we go into a deep dive of guilt and shame mm. uh, because it's called a guilt-free no because people give themselves all the time away all the time because they can't say no. They get manipulated and controlled. And so, and it's the longest, what I consider to be the deepest part of the workshop. Uh, and so, but the step one is step four. The rest of it, you'll learn a lot and it's, it's pretty straightforward and it's not difficult, but one and four are where the growth happened. And uh, three, five, six, and seven are where you get the tools. Mm. Sounds awesome. I'm sure that people will walk away with a different understanding of boundaries for themselves as well, our audience is primarily psychotherapists, right? Um, really, really need it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then skills to help teach their clients because our clients need help with boundaries, right? Um, especially like how to how to set your boundary and not feel guilty about it. That's a huge thing that people struggle with all the time. It's true. It's and so and so many therapists have not done their work. As I in my book, I write a chapter on how to find a therapist. And the thing I say is one of the first questions you should ask them is how much work have you done on yourself and how has it impacted you? Mm. And I said, if they won't answer the question, you need to find somebody else. Mm. <laughs> That's huge. <laughs> Because right. if they haven't done their work, they're going to do damage. It, yeah, that it's always surprising. But <laughs> I think at one point, the graduate training programs required folks to be in therapy. And now I don't think that they require it anymore. And I think that might be contributing to some of this. Uh, well, again, it's a shift from psychodynamic to CBT. It's a, it's a different paradigm. And it's just like, it isn't about the work you, it isn't about doing inter, uh, uh, psychodynamic, it's about doing all this. It's all about uh, a quick fixes for, to put people back together enough to send them back out to the war. And uh, I'm much more interested in healing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I agree with you. Um, I'm interested in the depth work and, not so much the superficiality. I don't tend to work in that um, in that brief uh, model. There are moments that it's necessary and useful, but it should not be the predominant paradigm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, folks interested in taking that training can go to the unspokenboundaries.com website, and will they find uh, your? other books available there? I know you have multiple books that you've authored. Yeah, I've published six books. Uh, all of them are out of print except the last one. Uh, and so, which we're offering today as a free gift for signing mm -hmm. up for my mailing list. Uh, there should be uh, a link there that'll take you to a landing page on the Unspoken Boundary site. Uh, and you can get a download, a PDF of the book and it's yours for free. Awesome. So uh, if you want an audio book, you'll have to go to Audible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's available there um, via audio. It's I love all, Audible. It's all electronic versions. It's in uh, audio, and, audio uh, and it is also in softback. So all are available. So well, um, and now I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into my next book because my next book is my, I'm writing my memoir about Ooh. my healing journey and what I had to go through to come out the other side. So oh, that's awesome. A, definitely a self-reflective process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I've been writing it for years. I just, now I need to put it in one place and put all the pieces together. So, I mean, because writing about my sexual abuse history and the cult history and all the other fun things that I went through. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I appreciate you making the time and I appreciate you sharing your book with listeners for free. And the link to that is unspokenboundaries.com forward slash podcast gift. And you can download it there. Thank you so much, Merle. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. What a delightful conversation and time I had with you. Thank you so much. And I wish you the great success with your podcast. And all that oh, comes. thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>